What up, peeps? Welcome into Unscripted and Unprepared, brought to you by Real Screen Magazine. I'm Jimmy Fox, and this episode, <sighs> we did it, guys. We did it. It is my long-awaited live sit-down with John Murray from this year's Real Screen Summit in Washington, D.C. They, you know, they say you shouldn't meet your heroes. That was not the case with John Murray. He lived up to every expectation I had, both professionally and personally. What a gentleman. What a great guy. It's a little nerve-wracking to have a conversation with somebody for the first time in front of a live audience. So there was that. But with only about 45 minutes to work with at the conference, I was pleased with what we got. So I hope those of you, the loyal peeps who listen to every episode of the podcast, I hope you appreciate what we were able to take away uh, in such a short sit-down with John. I could have talked to him for hours. But we covered a lot of ground. The real world, the simple life, Project Runway, the Kardashians, LeVar Ball, WWE Divas, Total Bellas, Ms. and Mrs., Born This Way, the man's accomplishments and list of shows is a mile long. I can't believe we did it. It was awesome. He's a lovely man. What more can I say? This is my sit down with John Murray. I hope you enjoy it. Take a seat. Take a seat over here. Uh, yeah. Note to self, never follow Rob Sherino. That was great. Uh, how you doing, sir? I'm good. I'm good. Legacy award winner, John Murray. Thanks for going on the podcast. Sure. Happy to. Have you done many of these before? Uh, I did one, uh, two days ago. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, and it was actually really fun. It was with uh, a young man who has a disability and he has his own podcast. I love the way, you know, we're democratizing all of this so that a young man with a disability can start a podcast and can focus on something that's important to his and to him and his community. It's a great thing. It's, it's the future. Yeah. Um, so, audience, we're going to go through the greatest hits with John. Feel free, as we mentioned, certain shows or works of John's to uh, clap and applaud at any point. Um, I'm going to start here. This is the true story of seven strangers picked to live in a loft and have their lives taped to find out what happens when people stop being polite and start getting real, the real world. Yeah. First question, who wrote that? Um, it's going to surprise you. Um, I think Lauren Zelaznik. Um, really? She, she and her husband, Lauren Zelaznik, went on to run... Um, Multiple NBC Universal cable networks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bravo. Um, but she and her husband had a little company that made opens and different things. And Lauren Correa, our MTV exec, knew her. And um, and so when we were getting around to figure this out, uh, uh, Lauren suggested we hire Lauren and her husband. And they came in and we brainstormed. And I'm not sure who actually wrote the words. I don't know if we were – I can't even remember whether it was like a group effort. But I give her credit for that opening main title. I'm glad I asked. Yep. Never would have seen that in a million years. So where did you grow up? You grew up in Syracuse? Uh, yeah, but I was, um, I was born in Gulfport, Mississippi, because my dad had his first job at a hospital there. And, um, uh, and then uh, we moved to Syracuse, and then we moved to Oxford, England, and then we moved back. So in, in, huh. in one, like, three-year period, I was an outsider in upstate New York because I had a southern accent. I was an outsider in Oxford, England because I had an American accent. And then I was an outsider back in America because I had a British accent. <laughs> what did you, so, what'd your dad do? 
he was a he was a psychologist, uh, but my mom was British, and okay. she decided at some point that she had had enough with America and moved my brother and myself over to England. Now, so you had been exposed to television on both sides of the pond at that point. Was there a particular show that kind of triggered any interest in the business? Yeah, there was a show called Seven Up, um, and remarkably, Seven Up. Uh, started in, I think, 62, which was when I was in England. And um, it was focused on people who were seven years old, and I was about seven or eight years old. So it was a strange thing, and I always loved that because they took these, these, these seven kids who were seven years old, and they were all from different socioeconomic levels in England. And um, it was just fascinating, and in a way, it was definitely influential later, many years later, when, when we came up with the real-world idea, this idea of putting people together who weren't, wouldn't normally be together. That's fascinating. That's the earliest memory you have of a show inspiring you. Mm-hmm. Describe for me when you first met Mary Ellis. Who set up the meeting? Who thought to match you guys up? Um, I was working at a television rep firm in New York called... A- HRP, Harrington, Ryder, and Parsons, helping local stations buy and schedule their syndicated programming. So I was saying, okay, put Oprah at 4, put People's Court at 5.30, People's Court will bring you the male viewers into your local news, you know, all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And so I had the best of the syndication world, the King Brothers, uh, Dick Robertson from Telepictures, these people coming and pitching me shows. And I was learning, and then I was placing them on different stations around the country. And I started to come up with my own ideas for shows. Mm. And uh, so I came up with a show called Crime Diaries, which uh, this was 1986, I think. And uh, are, you, are you in New York at this point? I'm in New York okay. working for, for HRP. Uh, but I'm taking that subway ride every day from Chelsea to the Upper East Side, and I'm coming up with ideas. And... Um, uh, I, I had this idea about uh, a scripted show, but based on true crime. Mm-hmm. And so I went to the New York Public Library, researched all these crime cases, and put this pitch together and uh, sold it to uh, New World, I think, no, to Quintex Entertainment and uh, Mort Marcus. And uh, uh, was going to do it originally with Jackie Smith, who used to head a- daytime TV at ABC. She decided she didn't want to do it in the end, and Mark Itkin, my agent, put me with Mary Ellis Bunham. Mm-hmm. And so she had her soap background and my news and doc background. We made a pilot for it. Uh, it went to uh, NAPTI. It didn't sell enough uh, markets, so it didn't go forward. But Mary Ellis and I loved working together. What, were, what was your initial impressions of her, that first sit-down? Well, the first time I met Mary I developed Crime Diaries over the phone and fax with Mary Ellis. Okay. I was in New York. She was in L.A., And when I flew out to pitch it, she picked me up at the airport, and she was wearing a net brace. (laughs) And we were going around pitching this show, and she would take the neck brace off before going into each meeting, and then she'd put it back on. Oh, she was a soldier. (laughs) Yeah, she was a real soldier. She was playing injured. Yeah, yeah. And Um, is it true that you... Is this true? You crashed on Mark Itkin's couch at one point when you came out to L.A.? Yeah. Mark was it, it for those pitches? Uh, yeah. Mark Itkin put me up on his couch in Manhattan Beach when he was living there. And, uh, I mean, he was a, a good agent. Great agent. Yeah. Uh, one of the best. Uh, he spoke of you fondly. He came on the show months ago uh, and talked a little bit about the origin story. Describe the relationship between you two, you and Mary Ellis. What hats did each of you wear? Did you divide and conquer? How did you balance each other? Yeah, we, um, you know, we had a partnership for 17 years until she passed away. We never fought once. 
Really? We had we had disagreements, but we never really fought. And I think we just respected each other so much. I could sense when something was important to her, and I needed to back off. And she could sense when something was important to me, and and she needed to back off. And it was it. And she was a much better business person than I was. I learned a lot about the business from her. She was tougher. She would send poor Mark Itkin. She would you know he would go out and do a deal for us, and she would se- keep sending him back to make the deal better. She would say this is not good enough. <laughs> and I don't know how many people tell their agents this is not good enough. And and amazingly, he would always get something better. So she knew she could do it. So she was savvy when it came to the business side, but wasn't her core background like show running and writing for daytime soaps? Not writing, but she had been an executive producer of a okay. number of daytime soaps. And so she understood, uh, particularly that first project, Crime Diaries, which was scripted, she understood how to uh, sort of set it up and how to get the scripts done because it was going to be very much produced like a soap opera, except that the cases were based on real crimes. Now, I, I've never worked as a team when it comes to pitching and going into the room. So I'm always fascinated when I meet with someone who, I, who had a partner what was the conversation before you guys go into the room? Did you guys have a routine? Was it just was it at that point just going to be a free flowing conversation, and there was no need to rehearse? Um, we would definitely uh, um, talk it out before we'd go in. I mean, we would we would sit there, and um, first of all, we'd sort of type up the pitch, and we'd pass it back and forth. Um, not so much lines as you know the the flow of it, yeah. the structure of the pitch, and um, when we'd go in. I would always sit myself uh, to her um, so that I could see her and the person we were pitching to. Because mm. I think, again, being always having been this sort of outsider, I'm good at reading a room. Um, and so, and I would play off of her. I just found that that worked for us. Um, and I could see if, I could just read what was going on and help push the pitch in a certain direction if it needed to go in a different direction. Well, you grew it into a huge institution of the business, and there's a, there's a phrase in the sports world, um, it's called a coaching tree, and they use it to describe when great coaches come up through the staffs of other great coaches. Bill Belichick was trained under Bill Parcells, so on and so forth. You guys at Buna Murray seem to have grown a giant producing tree. Some of the notables from my research, and tell me if I'm missing anybody, but Chris Abrego came through the ranks, Matt Kunitz, Clay Newbill, Jody Hill, who's now partnered with Danny McBride and directs all of their HBO shows like Eastbound and Down, Bruce Toms, George Vashore, Noah Pollock, Sean Rankin, Terry Kennedy. Am I missing any other? I'm sure I am. Yeah, there are other great people. I mean, a- there are great people who are showrunners right now at Buna Murray who, who haven't left to start their own companies yet. It's incredible. I mean, when you start off as a producer and then overnight you have a lot of, and we're about to get into the real world here in a second, but... You have all these productions running through your shop. You have to almost, not overnight, but slowly evolve into a manager and, and a CEO with so many people that you are responsible for. Was that an easy transition for you to kind of click that trigger and now turn into that kind of head of a company? Yeah, I mean, I don't think most of these uh, production companies, the people who run them, you know, we're not schooled in business. Right. Uh, most of us are just storytellers, and we suddenly find ourselves with a company growing around us, and you suddenly realize, oh, I need to go have an HR person. I need a business affairs person. And, you know, there's no book on how to do it, and you just sort of struggle through it. Or management styles. I mean, we know some of the best producers that are great storytellers aren't necessarily the best managers yeah. and personnel. Yeah, I guess... Uh, I was always um, 
I've always been very respectful of the creative people I work with. So when I have a showrunner, I really want it to be their vision mm. um, once it's passed off to them. So I see my role as to support them and help them reach their vision. Mm. And I think we couldn't have grown as much as we did if you didn't take that. If I was going to try and overmanage each production, I couldn't have so many productions. So I think that's uh, it's hiring. Grant Tinker once said it's all about hiring the right people and then letting them do their jobs. So the real world. What was the initial incarnation of the idea? Did it come in through a scripted, as a scripted idea? Or was it always supposed to be unscripted in what we now know of it? Yeah, MTV hired us to develop a scripted show, um, mainly because of Mary Alice's background. Um, and we uh, did a script. A guy named Michael Dugan wrote it. It was called St. Mark's Place. And it was about a bunch of young people down on the Lower East Side of New York sort of starting out their lives in New York. And uh, we did budgets and put a whole plan together. And ultimately, MTV said, this is just going to be too much for us. We can't mm -hmm. afford this. And so um, we seized the day and said, what about an unscripted show about a bunch of young people starting out their lives in New York? We had just done a, um, a pilot and a series that never aired at Fox called American Families which was sort of inspired by the original American family about, right. and it was each episode was about a different f American family in, in a crisis or transition. Mm. And, um, and the original idea was to stack it in a way that, you know, you'd be telling three stories simultaneously. Fox ultimately got scared of that and wanted each one to be a separate story. And ultimately Barry Diller left. So our show never aired. Um, but we had the pilot of that and we had sort of discovered in making that show that you could apply the principles of dramatic storytelling to um, unscripted work in terms of the way you laid out the story um, and in terms of the way you shot it and the way you told it. And, uh, and so, uh, so we, we went into, we met at the Mayflower Hotel, which no longer exists on Central Park West, with Lauren Correo for breakfast, and we pitched her this idea of an unscripted real world. And uh, by lunch, she called us back and Doug Herzog, her boss, had said, yeah, let's do it. And so we got some high eight cameras <laughs> and um, they gave us $37,000. And we went down to uh, Broadway in spring, I think, and rented a, um, a, uh, a loft. And we cast, uh, I think at that time it was six people to go in for a long Memorial Day weekend. Um, and we found these people just by putting up little things in laundromats and stuff with tear this number off. Call I, I was going to ask, who was the casting director? That was the casting we director? Were the, I mean, we essentially cast it. And we, yeah, and we found some interesting people. Uh, and uh, one of them was actually Lauren's assistant, Tracy Grandstaff, who later became the voice of Daria um, on MTV. Wow. Um, so anyway, so we shot this, and we knew within minutes, we were, we were huddled in the back bedroom, and we had these monitors, and when these people started bouncing off each other, these different personalities, we just all looked at each other and said, this is something we have not seen on television. And, and the crew that you put together, you assembled, did they come from a documentary background, or did you actually pull people in from the scripted world? It was a really interesting... Cameramen. It was a really interesting mix, and, I, and often the best, the most success I've had is when you have this amazing collaboration with a network. And what MTV did for us was they introduced us to some very creative directors mm. and people who helped us really find what that show, the style of that show. Um, 
because our work had not been that cool before. <laughs> um, and so I well, really, no network had been that cool yeah. on TV. Um, so yeah, the idea of the Dutch angles and sure. uh, the whole sort of um, unfiltered, raw feeling of the show. Um, there was a great editor we had named Alan Cohn who uh, edited those two pilots. Um, there were two, we, out of that long Memorial Day weekend, we made two 22-minute episodes. Okay. And then MTV uh, tested it, tested through the roof, and then they took nine months to pick the show up because it was such a radical departure from what they had been right. doing. So they were actually going to be hiring an outside production company, giving away a lot of control, and they were going to be paying for programming. They were used to getting it for free. What, what, so just for context, what was MTV at this point? It was mostly like little studio game shows. Uh, like remote and control. And VJs and VJs. God, I love remote yeah. control. Do you remember that show? Yeah. Man? Yeah. God, I love that one so much. Um, Classic MTV is the best, man. Yeah. But and, it was and, and they didn't even, um, when the show first went on the air, um, sometimes it would start at 9.55, sometimes it would start at 10.05. <laughs> they didn't really, and then suddenly realize, oh. Tune they, in tonight, 10 -ish. Yeah. Uh, suddenly there was, like, they would get all this switchboard would light up saying that people missed the first five minutes because <laughs> they started it, like, early. Right. Well, you and should have so, VHS taped it. Yeah, yeah, they suddenly realized there is something called appointment television because previously they were wallpaper television. That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, all right, so was there ever a discussion early on in the real world for that New York cast or any cast to continue on, a la Jersey Shore, Party Down South? Well, you know... The, was it always going to be a new city, new cast every well, year? First of all, we didn't know there was going to be a second season. Right. Part of the reason MTV loved the idea was it was so great to help brand that network as being completely different from, you know, the more adult networks that they faced. Um, it was telling stories about people who were actually watching the channel, and it was doing it in a way that just wasn't being done anywhere else. So from a branding standpoint, the show was a huge success. It had two pages in the arts and leisure section of the New York Times. NBC Nightly News did a two-and-a-half-minute piece on it. Um, you know, Forbes magazine, everybody was covering it. Do you it. remember the phone call that you and Mary Ellis got, like when you got the first ratings report, so that first episode? Like, do you remember that kind of celebration moment as partners where you're like, oh, my God, here we go. Was you know, I think we were just, um, you know, we had, we formed our company in 87, hmm. and it wasn't until 92 that the real world went on the air. So we had five years of pilots and, you know, eating up our, our SEP IRAs, you know, cashing those in. Mary else went back to work on Loving for a year because she had to make ends meet. How many employees would you say you had when you were doing the pilots of the real world? Oh, well, I mean, we had no employees. I mean, we had, we had ourselves, but we, in New York, we put together a staff with money MTV gave us. Right. Um, it, it wasn't a big enough staff. But as a company, there were no Buna Murray. No. No. Employees at that point? No. How many employees would you say are now at Buna Murray? Uh, I mean, there's, there's about um, 100 uh, corporate employees, but then there's what we right. call permalance, where people, same editors, same people, they get health benefits, they get vacation pay, but they're not, quote, corporate. It's a few so hundred generally people. Generally, there's usually 400 people, four or 500. Okay, so you talked about an audience. This was a show for the audience that was watching MTV. Uh, something I've always wondered, how did the casting process change over time? Because early on, you had a casting pool that wasn't familiar with this type of show because this was a very new genre of storytelling. Then, you know, 9, 10, 12 seasons down the road, the audience is kind of savvy or the casting pool's maybe savvy or thinking, hey, if I check this box, 
I'll be playing this role that they seem to always want to cast for. Did you guys have to change your casting process? Yeah, the casting process sort of initially started, as I told you, with people you know, pulling a telephone number <laughs> off the call. And then, um, and even that first season, I, I flew down to Birmingham and worked with the radio station and got 25 people to come in, and that's where I found Julie Oliver, the young woman from Birmingham who wanted to go to New York to dance. Um, and, um, and then, you know, by the second season, we started to have open calls where we would get 2,000 people showing up to be on the show. Um, and then, um, it's interesting, uh, we did the fourth season in London, right. and it was a co-production with MTV Europe, so we were going to feature some people from, um, we wanted someone from Germany or some of the other countries, and so we needed to know that they, up until that point, it had been a picture and a letter you sent, but that was the year that we said, well, you need to make a videotape, mm. so it was the first time when someone made a home tape to apply to be on a reality show, mm. and then when we came back with season five in the U.S. in Miami, we continued that. So you'd get kids going into Best Buy, and you know they 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 they'd buy a camera and return it the next day, having made their tape. Um, and uh, we used to go home with these bushel, you know, those things that the U.S. mail is delivered in those baskets. Yeah. And you know the PAs would load our car up with them as we went home to walk, and we would take all these tapes home and we would just and you know you'd put it in the machine and you knew within 30 seconds whether yeah. that person popped you know i was telling someone earlier you know you just it's not you, you're not looking for subtlety usually in casting you're looking for someone who you just grabs you um well they went on many cast members have gone on to become pro wrestlers vjs yeah models, i'm really excited uh actresses mike mazan who season 10 back to new york showed up to rear world from his home i think michigan and he had this belt this wrestling belt and it said the miz on it and he yeah. said i'm gonna be a wrestler yep you know and um and then he wrestled with coral on the show <laughs> his first experience with a strong black woman uh which taught him a lot and but now we are he went on and he's like one of the wwe's top wrestlers and now we're doing a series for usa with mike the miz and his wife is so it, it's like full circle. Is this the point in the interview where I like out myself as a huge wrestling nerd, <laughs> or do I just kind of keep that to myself? I'll keep it to myself. I was at the Royal Rumble last night in Philadelphia. No big deal. Um, he's the Intercontinental Champion, by the way, right now. Uh, he's doing well for himself. All right, I'm going to move on, because um, we've got time ticking and all the greatest hits to go through. Uh, let's start with The Simple Life. Yeah? Is it true that this started as someone trying to attempt to reboot Green Acres? Uh, yes. That is true. Um, so yeah, 20th- Mark Itkin, Mark Itkin, again, thanks to Mark, he said, you should really look at some of those old reality sitcoms and see if there's a, a, real, a, a reality angle on them. Right. And he mentioned Green Acres. And, uh, and strangely enough, apparently Peter Chernin had the same idea at the same time, so that when we went into Fox, they said, oh, my God, Chernin has the same idea. You need to do this with the studio. Okay. Um, we didn't really want to work with a studio, but right. said had to. And I, I give them credit. They had been talking to Paris Hilton, and they suggested her as... 20th had already? Yeah. Did, now, did 20th own the rights to Green Acres? Was the thought to really use the title? I don't think they did. We were just inspired okay. by it. Okay. Um, and, uh, and then the question was, uh, when we met with Paris, we agreed that she would be great for this. Okay. And then it was, and especially for Fox's... Cent- 
uh, sensibility. When we were originally thinking of it, we were thinking of sending a family, like mm. some Upper East Side New York family. But for Fox, it really made sense to have someone like Paris. Um, and how long and, did the search go until you found Nicole to team up with her? Well, the initial, I mean, some people, I, uh, some people had talked about Nikki Hilton, but um, okay. she wasn't that interested and she, she didn't bring something to it that, that just, it didn't, they didn't have the chemistry that uh, we were looking for. And uh, so we, we interviewed probably every friend that Paris had, um, <laughs> which was a pretty long list. And uh, ultimately, one day, Nicole Ritchie walked in, sat down next to Paris in our little insert studio, and they just started telling stories of Buckley uh, Private School, the yep. high school they went to, and all the mean girl things they did to other girls. <laughs> and it was just... Um, it was just amazing. I'm going to take Buckley off the list. Yeah. Uh, school's my they, girls one day. They were so funny, <laughs> and um, and the, it was just it was magical. And so then we because um, Nicole was hyster- Nicole was the comic relief, right? And Paris was the gorgeous kind of you know straight man. In, yeah, and the right? Paris was funny in her sort of cluelessness, sure. and she played that up obviously. Um, yeah. And then we took them out to uh, the valley to do a seven-minute presentation tape where we um, had them work for an afternoon at a canine clippery place. <laughs> and um, we had lined up a lot of, uh, of, the, of the canine place's best customers or most interesting customers to us to bring their most difficult dogs for yeah. Paris and Nicole to <laughs> deal with. And uh, at one point, I think we built it up so there were like six dogs that they were dealing with simultaneously. A couple of them escaped into the parking lot. You know, the <laughs> owner came back and said, I just found this dog in the parking lot. Like, what's going on, girls? You know, and it was, you know, it exactly showed. We put them sort of uh, fish out of water in a part of L.A. they didn't know. And uh, in that seven minutes, you could totally see the series. Were they immediately in on the joke, though? Like, after that whole dog grooming thing, was there any point Paris is like, no, I'm good, I don't need to do this, or was she totally in on it? No, they were totally up for it. Um, I think it was harder for them than they thought it was going to be because when we got to Altus, Arkansas, and we actually sent five producers out to five different states mm. to find that perfect family. Mm. And... Um, uh, uh, one of our producers, Tim Atzinger, found the uh, Lettings in Altus, Arkansas. And, um, uh, but I think the girls, yeah, they didn't realize they actually were going to have to sleep on the porch. <laughs> and that they were going to have to go to these jobs. And, and, and it got old really fast. Uh, Project Runway. Mm-hmm. Um, so a well-documented breakup takes place between Bravo and the Weinsteins. They set it up at Lifetime. You can Google it, everybody. Um, do you remember getting that call? Yes. That this is now potentially in play, and how how did that how was that call made? Is it they want to talk to you, or they're going to meet with five companies and everyone? No, no. Um, it was a really nice call to get. Um, I had worked with Andrea Wong at ABC on a couple different series, including Making the Band, hmm. and um, she uh, called me and said, "We're we're doing this, and Magical Elves." Um, uh, is not coming with the show because NBC is going to give them a lot of money to stay there, and um, I want you to come produce it. Did you ever have a, a conversation with Dan and Jane at Magical Elves or any awkward? I did. I like them, and I and I I thank them for creating such a beautiful format. Were you a big um, fan of the show? Previous? Absolutely. I think it is one of the most perfect formats out there, and obviously it's been copied by a lot of people huh. because it's so smart. Um, 
And so, uh, yeah, so it was a pleasure to get to take over uh, that show. But it didn't really come with an owner's manual. Well, that, <laughs> no one was interested in really helping us do it. And, were um, you able to bring over any of the crew or showrunners no, or directors, no, anybody? No. Wow. So, um, so we had to do sort of forensics on the show. Right. Uh, and, and, you know, and ultimately we figured it out. Um, but it, it took a little while. And the Weinstein Company was involved, too, and a couple executives. Um, but the real detail how to produce this show, we sort of had to figure out. Um, uh, and, I, and I was supposed to meet with Harvey Weinstein to get his blessing, but he never had time to meet with me. So, uh, that meeting never happened? I didn't meet, with him, meet him until I was on the set one time. How was that? It was good. He just walked in and said, I don't like the way that person's dressed. Change their clothes. <laughs> Did, I said, did, okay, we've been taping for five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> That's a little hard to do. <laughs> Keeping up with the Kardashians uh, and many, many spinoffs. At what point in the process did Buna Murray come into the fold on that project? On the Kardashians? Um, again, I think this goes back to um, having uh, relationships and a good reputation. Um, I, was not the, I was not the person who came up with this show. Um, Ryan Seacrest, uh, Kim Kardashian went in to meet with him. He was, she was meeting with sort of everybody. People were trying to figure out what do you do with Kim Kardashian in reality TV. He wisely sent one of his people out to, to just have her give a tour of her, of her house and family. Hmm. And you met, you know, uh, Chris, who is the momager into everybody's business and organizing them. You met the two other sisters. Uh, you met Bruce, the conservative dad. You met the two younger sisters. And, you know, uh, Lisa Berger, who is the exec, um, uh, said to Ryan, um, you know, you're just starting your company. You're really not set up to sh produce this show yet. We should have Buna Murray do it because we had actually, when Simple Life finished its run on Fox, it moved over to E! and started that Celeb Reality mm. 10 o'clock spot. And um, Lisa had been our exec on Real World for uh, at least 10 seasons. Oh. So, uh, so she had confidence in us. And uh, so, we, um, so we said we'd love to do it. So they actually, I was actually in Miami with Paris and Nicole shooting, I don't know, season three or four or something of Simple Life. And um, they managed to uh, put the, the tape up on a server or something. And uh, I looked at this tape and I said, oh, my God, this is the perfect sitcom. You've got... You saw it immediately. I saw it immediately because yeah. you, had, you had the three beautiful sisters who each had distinct personalities. You had the mom who ran everybody's lives. You had the dad who just, like, couldn't believe that his family was doing the stuff it was doing. And then you had the two cute younger uh, sisters. And then you had... Um, uh, uh, Scott, the, the boyfriend of Courtney that nobody wanted in the family. <laughs> um, so it was, it was all there. And, you know, you, you look at... You were in Miami with, with Paris and Nicole during Simple Life when right. this happens. Right. Did you have any conversations with Paris about Kim? Because weren't they friends at, at one point? Uh, they were. Um, I didn't. Um, but I think Kim might have been on one of the episodes of Simple Life at some point. Oh, I didn't point. know that. And Kim used to have a closet or organizing business or something where she'd come okay. in and organize your closet. Um, in addition to the dash <laughs> business. So, uh, but anyway, but it, uh, so we, um, made the deal over the weekend hmm. and we started shooting on the Monday. The series. Yeah. Mary yeah. It was a straight order. Um, and if you look at the, the main titles of that show, it's very much like a, a sitcom. sitcom. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so Mary Ellis, 
never had the chance to meet the family. Uh, how do you think Mary Ellis would have gone along with Chris Kardashian? I think they would have got along great. They're both super strong women. And, yeah. and you know, I've, I've made a lot of success of surrounding myself with really strong women. Um, and uh, uh, Mary Ellis was one of the strongest, but I would say Kris Jenner is a super strong woman, too. I think they would have really liked each other. Uh, Ball and the Family, uh, now on, on Facebook. LeVar Ball and his three kids, I'm a huge sports guy, so I could talk to you about this for for. Days. I'm not a sports guy, so I won't know that's anything fine. you're saying. That's, that's fine. Uh, but many people in the sports world, sports talk radio, they, they immediately go to the comparison. They say LeVar Ball is the Chris Kardashian of the sports world. Is that a fair assessment? Is that fair or foul? What do you think? Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, he's managing his son's basketball careers. He has strong ideas. Um, he's a dynamic personality. Uh, he's very watchable. Is he the same when the camera is not around? Or does he know how to turn it on and go into promotion mode? I think he's the same. Okay. Are there, are there, I mean, is that a show that kind of prepares you for anything in terms of production, fires you need to put out in the future? I mean, we're talking about one son getting held in China, you know, in his hotel room. The president is talking about getting the balls out of China. He moves his kids to Lithuania on a whim and pulls them out of high school and out of UCLA. <laughs> I mean, you're, you're... I said, I said, well, at some point I said after like 10 seasons of the Kardashians and after, you know, multiple marriages and everything else that's happened, um, including Bruce's transition, I said, they're the gift that keeps on giving. <laughs> and I feel like the new gift that keeps on giving is LeVar. When do you get the call when, when things are going on uh, with the family? I mean, are you getting it from, is Chris calling you saying, look, this is no. about the break in the news or are you reading it like everybody else? And then are you making the phone call? Chris calling me about what? About anything that might break oh. in, in a new story or... About no, Bailey. again, I have really strong showrunners, so uh, I'm, it's amazing how I'm not in the middle of it all. It's <laughs> um, a good place to be. Yeah, um, I empower my showrunners, and uh, they do an amazing job. Uh, total Divas, Total Bellas, and now Ms. and Mrs. Have you had any... All I care about is, have you had any meetings with Vince McMahon? I haven't. Okay. Again, we super need, strong showrunners. And that start. was an arranged marriage. That's, uh, again, E put us together yeah. with them. Um, and it's worked out really well. It, 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 uh, at the very beginning, there was some, you know, we spent a lot of time trying to figure out how to, because at that time, it was still this whole question of, is wrestling entertainment or is it sports? Mm -hmm. And I was amazed how open, it, it must have been just the right moment because Vince and his team were willing to, sort of acknowledge that it was entertainment because yeah. we were worried shooting behind the scenes that we would be showing stuff that we couldn't air. It was a big deal. I mean, I think there was only one other documentary many years ago that kind of took you behind the curtain and then never again. And the next time they did allow the audience to see who these people are behind the scenes was with divas. With, and again, I think their reason, I mean, it's, it was a business reason of Vince's was that he was trying to build more female interest in the WWE. Yeah. And so by having this female centric show, I mean, up until that point, the, the divas had been sort of window dressing. Yeah. And now they've become much more prominent because of the show. Absolutely. Uh, and it also gave a boost to some of the men in their lives as well, that maybe we're down here on the card mm -hmm. in the WWE ranks, but then seeing the relationships they had behind the scenes, they became fan favorites, and yeah. now many of them got a push. It's been, it's been great. I mean, I will say that the, the same 
whatever it is, the training that Vince does to make these wrestlers so entertaining, really prime them to be incredible television characters for us. You got to get on the behind the scenes of the XFL. Yeah. That's coming up. You hear about that? He's bringing it back. Yeah. So staying on the E-theme, Rose McGowan. You are producing a series now with Rose McGowan. John, Paris Hilton, the Kardashians, LeVar Ball, and now Rose uh, and, and by connection, the Me Too movement. How do you find yourself in the center of all the most notable conversations we're having across pop culture? It's really strange because I'm not a person of pop culture. I don't read People magazine. I, I, when I watch TV, I watch things like Downton Abbey. I mean, I'm like... Oh, I can, I can go all day with Downton Abbey. I am so Abbey. not a pop culture person. Um, but, you know, I, obviously there are people in our company who do. And also, I think, it come, again, it comes back to sort of representation. When Rose was thinking about this... She had been very impressed with what we had done with, as a company going back to Pedro Zamora. Mm. And she right. said that if she was going to make a TV show, she was going to do it with Buna Murray. Wow. And um, so, yeah, so it felt, and she actually said, and I want to do it for E. So she, in her own mind, had sort of figured this out. She conceived it and said, this is where I want to go with it. Yeah. And, and why E? Why, why did she target that now? I think because um, she wanted to go to some place. She didn't want to go highbrow. She wanted to go right, right into the not that, he is, the... not that E isn't highbrow. No, but it's, 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 it's general interest. I mean, she wanted to go right into the belly of the beast yeah. of Hollywood. Yeah, she wanted to go mainstream. Yeah, and, um, and uh, she's a very smart woman. And, you know, and it's really, we're helping her tell her story. She's an executive producer on it. Yeah, tell me, the, she, what is the show? Well, it's, it's, it's a two-hour doc, which airs uh, tomorrow night on E!, and then there are four uh, one-hour episodes. Okay. And um, the, the two hours really about sort of who is Rose McGowan, um, what's her story, where, you know, how did she um, sort of become the lightning rod for this movement? Mm. Um, and you learn, you know, she was born into a cult, the cult of the children of God. And she says that she ultimately graduated to the cult of Hollywood. I mean, it's a fascinating story. And she's been shooting for three years um, because she knew she wanted to tell her story. So she's been shooting lots of really interesting footage. And she's been making music about her struggle. And so we as producers were challenged to use that material within this documentary. So it's been an incredible collaboration. And um, I'm really so impressed with what the team has been able to put together. We had, I think, seven or eight editors on this and an amazing showrunner, wow. uh, Andrea Mitz, and, um, and a female DP and uh, mostly female editors. And um, it's a beautiful piece of work. And it's, I don't think you would expect to see it. Any, I think you'd expect to see it at, like, Sundance. I mean, I think it's really remarkable. And we, were, we started filming with Rose. We believe so strongly in her story that we started filming with her in early September. Mm. And you know everything that happened in the fall. Yeah. So we were a fly on the wall through all of that. Mm. And, um, and uh, you know, so we were already shooting uh, when we uh, went to E! And they signed on quickly. And that partnership has been amazing. They have been so impressive in how much they've embraced um, the storytelling and uh, the vision of the show. Uh, 
and I don't want to uh, leave Al uh, as, we, as we have five minutes left here. Uh, let's talk about Born This Way. Sure. Uh, tell me why this show is, is so near and dear to you personally. You have many, many shows running through, but it feels like this show particularly is, is one of your favorite children, if, I, if I'm allowed to say that. Um, and remarkably, after the incredible body of work for Buna Murray, this was the first Emmy win, correct or no? Well, we had won um, an Emmy for Autism Musical, okay. and we won an Emmy for Starting Over. Okay. Um, but Starting Over one was a daytime Emmy, and okay. no one really gets too excited about that. <laughs> uh, and the uh, uh, and the other the, the born the, and the uh, amazing and the uh, Autism Musical was like special program something I don't know. Okay. Anyway, but uh, yeah, it was very exciting. Um, you know, I think. Um, you know, I always said to people my proudest moment was the real world, and particularly the Pedro Zamora season. And I really feel like Born This Way took me back to that uh, feeling and the, the absolute authenticity of these young people whose story we're telling and their families. Um, it's reminded me sort of, of those very pure, wonderful first days of being in reality TV, mm. because our cast and their family have very little filters, and um, we're getting such honesty in the work, and um, we're getting these wonderful small moments that just have a resonance, um, and it's 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 just it's just reminded me why I love doing what I do. And Rob Sharano, who who you know gave a speech before we came up on stage, mentioned that there was an original version of this eight years prior and that yeah. you never gave up on it? Um, yeah, and I, you know, looking back, I'm glad that original version didn't go forward because I don't think we had the right take on it. Originally, it was more more like a real world where the we had four uh, young people in a house, mm. uh, the guys and the three girls were in another house. It, was, it felt too contrived, and I think mm. we discovered over the intermeaning time that the real story is in the families. And that's a better story for A&E because they're a network that's 25 to 54, the demo. Yeah. And so there was another way in. If it was just focused on the 25 to 30-year-olds, I don't think it would have worked. I, I, I admire the hell out of the fact that you, you had a passion project. It's so easy to take a no and walk away and just throw that on the development heap of things that didn't get made. But you, you stuck with it, and it's, it's incredible that you did. Well, and thank God they you know, sat around in a room one day and said, what did we... What, what did we turn down that we really loved? Mm. And uh, what do we want to take a second stab at? Well, in, in closing, two, two things. Uh, you talked about projects that either, you know, live or, or, or die in development. Uh, is there a particular project for you that feels like the one that got away? A pitch or a project that you guys could have produced and you didn't for whatever reason? Well, there's, I mean, we made some really bad decisions. Um, Chris Abrego, who was mentioned earlier. I was hoping you'd go there. When he, uh, uh, you know, ultimately ended up at the WB with Surreal. Surreal Life. Life. Yeah. Or when he walked into our office and said it was going to be called Surreal World. <laughs> and Mary Ellis sort of <laughs> sat up and, like, you know, like, was, like, ready to kill him. Um, yeah, because he wrote about this in the book. Yeah, he was, His um, book. he, he. Uh, yeah, and and the W he was starting off, so the WB wanted to mat, pair him with us, right, to produce it. And um, Mary Ellis was like, "Why would I pair with you to produce a ripoff of our show?" <laughs> 
She was not happy. Which, by the way, I mean, come on, give her credit. Like, it does feel like it might be cannibalizing your core show. Yeah, and I think we might have been too precious back then because then, you know, like a year later, MTV did uh, uh, Sorority Life, which was basically Rear World in a Sorority House. So it wasn't like everybody's going to be loyal to you and he, like, protect your franchise. Um, Oh, man. uh, So, yeah, so that was a big mistake because eventually it left the WB uh, and went to VH1 and Chris owned the show. Yeah. And, you know, thus sold his company to Endemol for a lot of money. He's done pretty well for himself. Uh, yeah. And we could have been part of that whole thing. <laughs> I think you're doing, I think you're doing okay. Yeah. Uh, lastly, is there one dream project that still eludes you for whatever reason that you've wanted to make that you've yet to have the opportunity? Uh, there's a lot. I was telling people really? earlier that, um, that uh, yeah, I have a drawer full of them. Really? And every once in a while, starting over was one of those projects. Uh, and it sat in the drawer after, you know, I, we did a, a, a presentation tape for King World. Roger King said, why would you bring me to his development people? He said, why are you bringing me this starting over thing? I only do talk shows and, and, and game shows. Uh, and then it sat in the desk. And then NBC, um, like, had something go south just before NAPTI. And I got a call saying they're desperate for a show. And I walked in and sold them starting over. And we were you know, making 250 episodes a year very quickly. Um, so even now, you're still sitting on things that for whatever reason haven't Absolutely. I have a show, if anyone wants it, it's called The Tragedy Tour. It's a great opportunity. And um, I-, I loved it. It's, um, uh, I want to take a female comedian who's, um, and I had one years ago, uh, who's had some kind of tragedy in her life, and she turned it into comedy. Mm. And she's going to go around the country and meet people who have had tragedy in their lives and help them deal with their tragedy by developing a comedy routine out of that tragedy. Mm. It ends up in Vegas with them <laughs> performing. And if it's really good, then we'll book it on the road. Anyway. Do you need, do you need Kathy Griffin's phone number? Because no, I, <laughs> she might be the right person. I actually yeah. pitched this project at Lifetime many, many years ago. And we got like very early in the pitch, the network executives started backing up their chairs. They were so offended by the pitch, and they asked, asked me to actually stop. <laughs> they said, stop. Wait, wait, when was this? A long time ago. I don't a long say, time ago. Yeah, I don't of course. Say I was, which regime? But of course, but it was, that was a long, long time ago. A long time ago. I mean, long before Rob was involved. No, I mean, you're John F. and Murray now. That doesn't happen to you. No, it still happens. Uh, <laughs> you're, you're, no, you're only as good as your last show. Uh, believe me, you are, you are only as good as your last show. You are the best. Thank you so much for Thanks. doing this. You're welcome. Thank you, everybody. Thank you so much.